Chapter forty seven, part one of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two by Moncure Conway. Chapter forty seven, part one. In 1867 I gave two lectures in Sheffield. The invitation was conveyed to me by a distinguished resident of that place, H. C. Sorby. I had heard Ruskin speak of this gentleman as a friend who had shown him the rainbow of the rose, the rainbow of the violet, etc., and had learned that he was the very genius of the spectrum. He was an attractive gentleman, and in his house, Broomfield, showed me what Ruskin had described as rainbows. From each flower, from every variety of leaf and grass, he squeezed a drop of its color, and threw its spectrum on a screen. The important thing was that each had its own spectroscopic lines, its individual signature, just as the planets have. He showed me the spectrum of a drop of human blood, its dark lines differing from those of all red dyes. More than seventeen years had passed, since in our Virginia town I gave my first public lecture, as related in the seventh chapter. At eighteen I was aspiring to the universe. My theme was pantheism. I dealt with a celestial rainbow, and in the three primary colors contained in light I saw a symbol of the Trinity. Now at thirty-five, not looking through any Athanasian lens, but through that of science, I beheld the rainbows around me on earth, at my feet, with their real revelations. In our Virginia garden, where I meditated on the cosmos and spectral trinity, every flower and grass-blade held a revelation that might have awakened me from the dream in which I was moving. The morning star of another revelation shone on me, namely, that in my pilgrimage from dreams of the universe to religious interest in things near me on earth, I was following the path of the human race. Like the ancient Aryan singing his Vedic prayer to sun and sky, I was such stuff as dreams are made of, and Bunyan surrounded my little life in Virginia with a sleep, a dreamland. I sang as loudly as the slaves around me their favorite hymn. When I can read my title clear to mansions in the skies, I'll bid farewell to every fear, and wipe my weeping eyes. Should earth against my soul engage, and fiery darts be hurled, then I can smile at Satan's rage, and face a frowning world. Not a dart, not a frown, was suffered by any Christian in our region, but Bunyan had made them all visible on that mystical milky way to the celestial city, beset by Apollyon, which I was preparing to travel. At sixteen I met with the little travesty by Nathaniel Hawthorne, the celestial railroad, which charmed by its exquisite style, and I believe still more by the freedom with which it dealt with solemn matters in a humorous vein. A year or two later I could smile at finding myself on the side of those Hawthorne made fun of. Giant transcendentalism, Mr. Smooth it away filling up the slough of despond with volumes of French and German philosophy. Gradually my celestial city came down to earth. A world free from slavery, war, superstition, ignorance. But still it shone far away as the delectable mountains, and the land of Beulah. 
Nevertheless, for these ideals I left my comfortable city of destruction, that fair garden in Maryland already described. But alas, youth is awakened from one dream only by another. My ideal world was still quasi-millennial, to be realized by revolutions, and that the world around me was abloom with ideals for eyes withdrawn from the future began to appear, as yet mistily, when Darwin came to enshrine Emerson's ideal evolution in science. Darwin's discovery made a new departure in my pilgrimage necessary. Emerson had already canopied evolution with rainbows, but they were optimistic. Optimism and pessimism are equally growths out of fatalism. If nature and time are working together for the best, if evil is good in the making, we may fold our hands. But Darwin showed that the principle of selection in nature was impartial between good and evil. The corollary was that the force he revealed must be controlled by human, i.e. purposed, selection. I was still a theist in the attenuated sense of Matthew Arnold's faith that there is in nature a stream of tendency, not ourselves, that makes for righteousness. This was an Emersonian rainbow cast around natural selection. In my exaltation I everywhere found symbols and parables of this mind in nature, spelt with a capital N. At Christmas time Tyndall performed at the Royal Institution pretty experiments for children, and I took my little boy to them. Among the experiments some were on the spectrum, he showed that in the dark space around the colors there was more heat than in the colors themselves. A piece of paper passed safely through the seven colors, but burst into flame in the dark space adjacent. Behold a parable of the invisible power surrounding visible force and action! I remembered the rainbow I used to watch bent over the fury of Niagara, and wrote an essay entitled The Cataract and the Rainbow which troubled my friend Professor Newman by its necessitarianism, although it was optimistic. My eyes once reverently turned earthward, parable on parable. On a summer excursion I travelled from Glasgow to Oban with Herbert Spencer, one of my earliest friends in England. There were many English tourists on the barge, and barefoot children trotted beside it with the hope of having pennies thrown to them. A good many were thrown, as the scrambles were amusing. The little Scots long continued their pursuit, but presently the smaller ones weakened, especially the girls. There, I said to Spencer, is an example of the survival of the fittest, or fleetest. The weaker fall behind and are getting no pennies. Yes, for the moment, he said, but soon the force of compassion will work for their benefit. And so it was. Pennies were showered on the tired toddlers and equality was established between the weak and the strong. Also Herbert Spencer's phrase, survival of the fittest, received a connotation of fitness congenial with the ethical side of the religion of evolution. Thus even in my summer excursions I must still be a pilgrim. In Glasgow also I found the house of an interpreter. My friend Professor Nichols took me to see Sir William Thompson, now Lord Kelvin, whom I had heard at the Royal Institution in London. He showed us in his laboratory a box containing a number of metallic cylinders received from Paris. They were small as cans of fruit, but each was a canned thunderstorm. Sir William told us that soon after their arrival a friend mentioned to him the case of a baby on whose tongue was a threatening tumour which he was afraid to cut away, lest there should be too much loss of blood. 
Sir William was just then experimenting on the various degrees of heat derived from his stored lightning, and it occurred to him that the merest touch of one of his wires at white heat should clear away the tumour. The operation was perfectly successful. I went off with a good theme for my congregation. It was picturesque for Franklin to draw lightning from a cloud into a bottle, but it charmed me more to think of a thunderbolt so humanized as to remove a baby's tumour by one gentle and painless touch. Another visit I made was to a lady in the neighbourhood of Edinburgh, whose method of controlling the wild forces differed from that of Sir William. This was Mrs. Clement, who belonged to a prominent family in London, South Place Rationalists, Peter Alfred Taylor, M.P., being her nephew. She was educated among Unitarians, but in early life came under the influence of Edward Irving, and subsequently founded a religion of her own, to which she made a few converts. She was a wealthy widow without children, and lived in a pleasant homestead a few miles out of Edinburgh. I should hardly have gone so far but for a hope of obtaining some new light on demonology. Every now and then, I was told, an advertisement appeared in an Edinburgh newspaper, announcing to the circle of prayer that a vacancy had to be filled at a certain hour of a certain night. It was the Clementian belief that wrecks were caused by the imps of Satan, and that the reason why such disasters usually occurred at night was that then all prayer ceased, Christians being asleep. So it was arranged that there should be formed a circle of prayer, each one taking an hour or half-hour of the twenty-four, to the end of circumventing the storm-devils by an unbroken defence of prayer. I was not altogether without sympathy for the ascription of some Scotch winds to the devil, and this with my professional curiosity led me to drive out to Mrs. Clement's house. I was kindly received by the amiable lady, but presently felt rather guilty, for Peter Taylor, M.P., her nephew, had apparently given her no hint of my being the minister of heretical South Place, and when I told her I wished to learn something about her religious views, she spoke so freely as to excite a fear that she supposed me a possible convert. She told me the points on which she had parted from Edward Irving's views. I think it was mainly on account of her belief that the reciprocal washing of feet was essential to salvation. When I inquired whether she ever saw her London relatives, she answered that, although she had kind feelings towards them, she had not for some years visited them. They were all Unitarians, and the last time some of them had stayed in her house she had a warning. I at once got ready to leave, but inquired something of the nature of the warning. She answered with perfect simplicity that the first time she had entered the room where her Unitarian relatives had slept, some invisible power seized her by the back and hurled her to the wall, and she felt pain for several days wonderful that one small province could produce at the same time Sir William Thompson and his regenerate lightings, and Mrs. Clement with her assaulting devils. In 1870 was published in London and New York my volume entitled The Earthward Pilgrimage, or How I Left the World to Come for That Which Is. The response to my book was surprising. Father Ignatius, an Anglican priest masquerading in monkish dress, perverted a phrase about the worship of a dead Jew, and made the country ring with it. Beresford Hope, M.P., read in Parliament an extract from my advocacy of freedom of divorce to illustrate alarming tendencies of the times. These attacks helped the book in England, and no doubt it would have had equal success in America had my friend and publisher Henry Holt been a man of manoeuvres. 
a fire occurred in his establishment which confined itself strictly to consuming a whole forthcoming edition of the earthward pilgrimage had that fact been got into the pious papers there is no knowing what demand there might have been for a book selected for so obvious a judgment the work was taken seriously and well reviewed it brought me many sympathetic letters and new friends professor henry sidgwick of cambridge wrote in nature a review that especially encouraged me and with him a number of eminent fellows invited me to visit that university as their guest among these were fletcher moulton afterwards q c and m p w k clifford afterwards professor in university college london and e h palmer professor of arabic and persian the earthward pilgrimage represented another stage in a veritable and conscious spiritual pilgrimage from month to month i still found my mental attitude changing and always in the direction of a decreasing interest in the universe and an increasing interest in things small and near the study of folklore became the most important part of mythology in december eighteen seventy was printed in fraser an article on mystic trees and flowers in which after showing that the healing or sacred flora were popularly associated with sun moon planets and celestial potencies i made a generalization regarded by the editor frude as new and true it is generally supposed that man's earliest worship is represented by superstitions concerning plants and animals that it was from these lower objects that his reverence gradually ascended to the adoration of sun and stars but a careful examination of the superstitions which i have recorded will furnish many evidences that the case was really the reverse it is probable that the awe which was the beginning of worship was first excited in the human mind when it gazed upon the mysterious silent heavens by the conflicts of night and day and the wild power of the elements at a later period and after man had given greater attention to the cultivation of his own world the scene of his interest would be gradually shifted from the distant heavens to the near earth from the cold star to the flower unfolding beneath it progress of thought would then as now be from minding high things toward condescending to things of low estate from the unattainable to the attainable in my travesty of the pilgrim's progress most of the incidents occur in both worldsburg there was irony in the name but i often had to take it to myself my feet were well planted on the earth academically but i had not reached the secret of george fox the quaker who said it was revealed to me what other men trample on shall be thy meat my sentiments nerves mental habitudes did not leave both worldsburg so readily as my logic but i had got far enough to take to heart the lessons taught by little things to this day when i am grey i remember the impression made on me by the following incident on a visit to stratford-on-avon i met at the house of edgar flower an attractive lady from germany she was acquainted with the best literature of her own country spoke english and was an enthusiastic shakespearean the bright and pretty little daughters of the family regarded the Fräulein as some wondrous being from fairyland. One fine morning the Fräulein and I went for a walk with the children over to Anne Hathaway's cottage. Our way led over the fields decked with daisies pied and violets blue, along budding hedgerows, and the larks were singing blithely. The Fräulein told me pretty things about Goethe and his circle, and repeated fine bits of poetry and legend. We saw Anne Hathaway's cottage at its best, and altogether had a charming saunter. 
End of chapter 47, part 1